spare me, please, your heartfelt tributes to Daniel Ellsberg, unless you follow it up with free Julian Assange. Free Julian Assange. The man who leaked the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, is dead at the age of 92. Called the most dangerous American, in the 1960s, Ellsberg was an assistant to the Secretary of Defense during the buildup of troops in Vietnam. Then, working for the State Department, Ellsberg spent two years in Vietnam while the war was raging. Upon returning from Vietnam in 1967, with half a million Americans fighting and dying over there, he began working on a secret Pentagon project known as the Pentagon Papers, which reviewed all the classified documents surrounding the lead-up to American involvement in Vietnam, as well as the execution of that war. The Pentagon Papers were an internal, classified, and comprehensive review of the decision-making that went into the war and its planning. One of the biggest takeaways from the Pentagon Papers was that the Pentagon and our president lied incessantly to the American people. They lied incessantly to Congress and each other to keep the Vietnam War going. One of the major admissions in the Pentagon Papers was that South Vietnam was not a real country, that without America's support, the popular will was with the leadership of the communist-led North Vietnam, who America was fighting. The Pentagon Papers revealed that Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara exaggerated the number of casualties suffered by North Vietnam. He lied to the American people about how well our troops were doing. Pentagon officials knew that with half a million soldiers fighting and dying, they knew that at best Vietnam would end in a stalemate. The Pentagon Papers revealed that President Lyndon Johnson lied about the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which he had used as the justification for sending troops into Vietnam. And so the Pentagon Papers served as the Pentagon's own indictment of itself, which is why it remained classified until June of 2011. The Pentagon Papers were leaked by Daniel Ellsberg in 1971, but the Pentagon Papers were officially still classified until June of 2011, two years after the death of Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense who commissioned the Pentagon Papers and who was exposed in the Pentagon Papers as a liar, a sociopath who lied every step of the way into that war. Americans would never have known about the Pentagon Papers had it not been for Daniel Ellsberg, who, after returning from Vietnam, took a job with the Rand Corporation, that's a liberal think tank, and he began Xeroxing copies of the Pentagon Papers and leaked them to the New York Times. That was in 1971. This was while the war in Vietnam was raging on, while our soldiers were dying. Because of the leak, the Washington Post began publishing stories based on the Pentagon Papers. And then the Nixon administration took these news organizations to court to prevent publication of the entire Pentagon Papers, especially as a book. They were going to publish it as a book. Immediately, the Supreme Court got involved and in a six to three decision, they ruled that the government failed to prove that release of the Pentagon Papers served as a threat to our national security or as a threat to our soldiers serving in Vietnam at the time. Justices Hugo Black and William Douglas wrote in the majority decision that the press is protected, so, quote, 
that it could bear the secrets of government and inform the people. This is what the Supreme Court ruled. The press is protected so that it could bear the secrets of government and inform the people. Hugo Black and William Douglas went on to write in the majority opinion, quote, only a free and unrestrained press can effectively expose deception in government and paramount among the responsibilities of a free press is the duty to prevent any part of the government from deceiving the people and sending them off to distant lands to die of foreign fevers and foreign shot and shell, unquote. That's the Supreme Court in 1971. They went on, quote, far from deserving condemnation for their courageous reporting, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other newspapers should be commended for serving the purpose that the Founding Fathers saw so clearly. In revealing the workings of government that led to the Vietnam War, the newspapers nobly did precisely that which the Founders hope and trusted they would do, unquote. The Supreme Court ruled that America could read the Pentagon Papers, but Ellsberg was still charged with violating the Espionage Act, our good old friend, the Espionage Act. He was charged with violating the Espionage Act, but two years later, his case was thrown out after the Watergate scandal revealed that President Richard Nixon ordered his White House plumbers to break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to retrieve any files that would serve as an embarrassment, a humiliation to Daniel Ellsberg. Compromat. Our old friend, Compromat. So, what was the lesson from the Pentagon Papers? The lesson is that governments, the American government, will classify documents not to keep you and me safe, but to keep the government employees classifying these documents safe. The Vietnam War was raging in 1971, the same year the Pentagon Papers were released. And the Supreme Court knew that these classified documents didn't endanger the lives of our soldiers in Vietnam. Keeping them classified would only protect the generals, the presidents and secretaries of defense who endangered the lives of our soldiers by sending them to fight in Vietnam based on a series of lies. The lesson from the Pentagon Papers is the American government lies the military lies and they commit war crimes and perjury. Documents are classified not to keep us safe, but to keep the government safe. I can assure you most, if not all classified material has nothing to do with national security. I can assure you that classifying government documents makes us less safe. It permits rogue agencies to operate in the shadows, making us more vulnerable, more susceptible to attacks from foreign and domestic adversaries. Richard Nixon ordered rogue elements of the government, his plumbers, to break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. So the other lesson from the Pentagon Papers is that the government spies on Americans not to keep anyone safe, but to keep us in line. Why does the president have at his disposal 18 separate spy agencies that we know about? Now, Nixon 
ordered the break-in of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office for one reason, to get compromat on Daniel Ellsberg, to get files that would shut him up. The government, working with large corporations, continues to spy on ordinary Americans. The government, working with large corporations, gets information on Americans, information that will never hold up in court, but it's information that can be leaked to the media or shown to someone's wife or husband in order to embarrass someone. It's how you keep people in line. It's how you keep your political enemies in line. Read about the private detective in L.A., Anthony Pelicano. Anthony Pelicano was able to get his hands on police files in Los Angeles, and he made a lot of money off those files. How? Well, show business managers used Anthony Pelicano to keep rogue clients in line. So did divorce attorneys. Divorce attorneys relied on the private detective, Anthony Pelicano, to get angry ex-wives, to prevent angry ex-wives from asking for too much money. That's why Nixon wanted Ellsberg's psychiatric files. Not to lock him up, to silence him. Ellsberg was being spied on. We're all being spied on, all of us. And they're not spying on us so they can send us to prison or to keep America safe. They're spying on you and me to shut us up. Stalin's top guy, Beria, ran Stalin's secret police. Beria spied on everyone. He knew everyone's secrets. And with that comes great power, even over Stalin. So, right now, our government is trying to extradite Julian Assange and put him on trial for violating our old friend, the Espionage Act. Julian Assange is in Great Britain right now. And unfortunately, Joe Biden's Justice Department is trying to get their hands on Julian Assange. Julian Assange, through WikiLeaks, exposed American war crimes committed by our soldiers in Iraq. There is video, thanks to Julian Assange, we've been able to see this, there is video of our soldiers in, a, in Apache helicopters laughing as they gunned down innocent civilians in Iraq. But so far, the only one facing criminal charges is Julian Assange for leaking that video. Not the soldiers who committed the war crimes. Our government instead wants to prosecute Julian Assange for exposing the war crimes. So far, the only one who served any time for those war crimes is Chelsea Manning, who gave those files to Julian Assange. I believe in a strong government, but I believe in a government that works for the people, not the rich and powerful. The rich and powerful will always use our government to further their means by sending our military, our soldiers off to war to protect the rich and powerful's financial interests. It's a story as old as the Bible. And these military leaders, as Smedley Butler would call them, gangsters for capitalism, our military leaders lie and they will keep secret from the soldiers and the American people the real reason these wars are being fought. And they will classify any document that reveals the real motives behind all these unnecessary wars. Most, if not all, of classified documents 
are not about national security. They're about protecting the military leaders and our politicians from being charged with perjury or war crimes. That's the takeaway from the Pentagon Papers. Most classified documents, like the Pentagon Papers, are about protecting the rich and powerful who force our politicians and generals who they control to fight wars. Now, on Thursday, here in America, a grand jury indicted Jack Tashira. He's that 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman who leaked classified documents on a Discord server. Now, from those documents that he leaked, the Washington Post was able to learn that the Biden administration lied when they intimated Vladimir Putin blew up the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic. Couple these documents that Jack Tashira leaked, couple these documents that Jack Tashira leaked, with Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch reporting earlier this year that it was the Biden administration that blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. And you can make a serious case that our government committed war crimes, that our government committed ecocide, that our government is responsible for one of the largest environmental disasters in history. The blowing up of those two Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic. Yet it's Jack Tashira who's on trial for leaking government documents. Maybe, maybe he should be on trial. But who's the real criminal? Who did the most damage? The government that blows up those pipelines or the kid who leaks the documents? Who's the criminal? Who's the real criminal? The Secretary of Defense and United States president who lies America's way into sending half a million men and women to fight and die in Vietnam with almost 60,000 dead soldiers or Daniel Ellsberg. Who's the criminal? Daniel Ellsberg or Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense who commissioned both the Pentagon Papers and the war in Vietnam. Who's the real criminal? Who broke more laws? Our Supreme Court in 1971 spelled it all out for us. They said, governments lie, and it is the job of journalists to catch those lies. Journalism isn't interviewing powerful people. It is not journalism asking presidents, politicians, or billionaires, or retired generals who are now lobbyists for Boeing, or current generals what they're thinking. Journalism is exposing their lies because they lie. All corporations, all rich people, all generals, all presidents, all governments lie. It is not journalism to hold a town hall on CNN and provide a platform to a presidential candidate so he can spread more lies. Journalism isn't interviewing the powerful and allowing them to lie. Journalism is rolling up your sleeves and interviewing the people who can prove that those people, the generals, the politicians, the presidents, the secretaries of defense are all liars because the people in charge are all liars. The burden lies on them to prove otherwise, and it is the responsibility of journalists to prove that they're liars. If you're a reporter who interviews these liars, you're just spreading their lies. 
our Sunday morning talk shows here in America are just populated with liars and journalists who amplify the lies of the liars. You cannot correct a liar in real time. We watch the 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 Trump town hall when there's a fire hose of lies. You can't you can't turn it off. Stop interviewing politicians on Sunday morning and calling it journalism and then stop interviewing other reporters after you interview those politicians. Stop talking to powerful people and other journalists. That's not news. That's amplifying lies. Journalism isn't interviewing someone. It's gathering facts and exposing lies. As the great Bill Moyers says, news is what they don't want you to know. And he should know because before he was a great journalist, he was Lyndon Johnson's press secretary. Daniel Ellsberg was willing to die in prison. Chelsea Manning was tortured, placed in solitary confinement for the truth. The least American reporters, the least that our American reporters can do is to stop asking politicians what they think and call that news. That's not journalism. It's lying. Free Julian Assange. Spare me your tributes to Daniel Ellsberg tonight unless you followed up with free Julian Assange. We are now joined by the Hershenfelds. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst, the real deal. Ethan Hershenfeld, author of Today Is Now, is not the real deal. He's an imposter, but I think he could pass as a as the real deal. I asked the real doctor how his summer was going, and you said it doesn't start till August fourteenth. My summer. Are you on a Julian Gregorian uh, Freudian calendar? What what? A modified Freudian calendar. <laughs> So, so psychiatrists all go on vacation in August. I wouldn't say that used to be the rule that all psychoanalysts and some psychiatrists would take off the month of August until Labor Day, because that's how they did it in Vienna. Now, which which came first, summertime or psychiatrists deciding to take August off? Well, I think everybody took August off in Vienna. And and that's how it became a Freudian tradition. Although, in the early days, <clears throat> Freud was a famous hiker and loved going up to the Alps. And he would take his patients with him. Right, you mentioned that before. And he, would, and he would leave them at the top of the mountain. <laughs> And then you'd say, yes, they're cured. They stopped coming. <laughs> a little too intimate for 20th, 21st century? Yeah, but that wasn't the 21st century. That was the beginning of the 20th century. And doctors and patients could get that close. They could get that close. But, but I would say that if he had left them at the top of the mountain that that would have enhanced their survival skills. And you heard about those four little children in the Amazon who survived for 40 days? Yes. When I heard, that's an amazing story, but when I heard that story, I thought to myself, that 13-year-old boy who kept his three younger siblings alive and relatively well for 40 days, I... I'd bet the farm on that kid in life. Well, he's got a movie deal and a book deal. 
to say the least. Aside from that, he's also got great material for his bar mitzvah speech. <laughs> I don't know. He's coming up. I don't. Know, I don't think he was Jewish, but maybe for some first college application essay. <laughs> yes. So. Let's talk about our president, because there's an article in The New York Times that I thought was right up your alley. It's about this need that Donald Trump had for his box. He's not our president. Maybe he's your president, but he's not my president. What did I call him? Our president. Oh, I'm sorry. Our our ex-president. Our once and future president. (laughs) Hopefully from your mouth. Nobody understood why he held on to the classified material. If you if you asked if the, if you get a subpoena to return the classified documents, why won't you return them? And apparently he liked to travel with what was called his beautiful mind boxes that was a collection of his clippings and souvenirs and classified documents. And he had to be near them all the time because the boxes were a reflection of his mind. It was almost as though when the aides were taking the boxes from Mar-a-Lago up to the golf course in New Jersey, Bedminster, so he could be near the boxes. That was his his mind. And he would panic if he didn't have his boxes. And also, uh, yeah, the, the idea that on some flights, they would discuss which box do you want on this flight and do you want your box with you, which he says, no, not this box. Like he really knew what was in the box, <laughs> like an insane person, like a hoarder. So uh, yes, it's exactly a hoarder. It's not like a hoarder. <clears throat> Just the fact, not that he had that much money, it turns out. But hoarding all that money is the same kind of condition of people needing to hoard stuff to somehow quell their anxiety, whatever it symbolizes to them. The boxes contained uh, souvenirs, memories, information, things that brought him stability. If he knew they were near him, I would assume because everything else is transient, that he loses money. He loses his buildings. Nothing's really in his name anymore. So he's desperately trying to hold on. To I think what it, I think actually what it comes from is his lack of connection to other people. I think he has no actual genuine friendly connections with other people, which is related to his inability to laugh He's really insulated in his own head. So for him, like maybe a love letter from Leona Helmsley that he has to have <laughs> near him, that's for him, that really substitutes for what other people get from, from an actual phone call or, or an actual interaction, a cup of coffee with someone. He has none of that. He's just surrounded by sycophants and employees and donors and marks for all of his scams. And it's the boxes i i i presume they're like uh they're like his friends it's like a kid uh their attachment to their stuffed animals a lonely kid they have on their bed all those stuffed animals arrayed and and they have they all have a meaning and a personality and he has a relationship to all of those memories because he doesn't have relationships to, to actual people i guess that makes sense i've read stories even before this that he would travel with the boxes and open them up on the flight and show certain documents to people. Yeah. Is Chicken, it f- fish, nuclear attack plan. <laughs> <laughs> Is the nuclear attack plan, was it written with peanuts? Were peanuts in the room when it was warm prepared? Nuts, warm nuts. Uh, <laughs> Department of Justice documents. So in his defense, is it fair to say that he he wasn't selling these classified documents he just needed them to make himself i don't think anyone i haven't heard anyone say credibly that he was selling them although he would he would like like a baseball card he would have i think that inclination to sell them like memorabilia he's that <laughs> kind of guy 
trading but, uh, trading classified material on the open yeah, like, market. He was like Kim, Kim Jong Un, nineteen seventy eight, <laughs> open A's, <laughs> autographed um, with the bubble gum still intact. <laughs> but um, no, I, I just think it, it, it's it's all part of that same uh, puffing himself up, and sh- he's a big show off, and he just yeah. wanted to show the documents, which you're not allowed to do, <laughs> right? What? Look what I have. Aren't I great? We all need to look at something and say, this is mine. Is that for posterity, for immortality, for to make sense of the world? We, we need tangible material things to, to, to prove that we exist, right? Well, to different degrees and different people. Yeah. It was a lot easier back in prehistoric times among the Neanderthals and among uh, even going back just about 15,000 years, if you went back then, uh, in the Stone Age. Because if you went somewhere on a trip, you know, you could have an impulse. Oh, I'd like to bring this stone back to mm-hmm. back to my family. But back, but your family, that's all they have also. Back at home, they just have stone. And they're with you. Right. They're, all, <laughs> they're also <laughs> with you. You're nomads. <laughs> So it's now in a world, the problem in the modern world is there's lots of different stuff. Back when everything was just one thing, then there was no need to gather stuff and travel with it. And everything was either edible or it was a stone. It made it very simple. <laughs> and you could tell the edible stuff was not a souvenir. And the stones, you know. Do you think slavery was invented because parents were out of things to bring home on business trips? So they brought home other people? Well, it began, actually, as they needed someone to schlep home the stuff that they were bringing <laughs> home. And then they were like, wait a minute. We also have the people who brought the stuff home with us. <laughs> You're not leaving. Yeah. You're staying here. Yeah. Holding on to things. So I'm going to guess that this is poor uh, toilet training, I would assume. The, the trauma, I hope I'm pronouncing trauma properly. Yep. It's a little simplistic, David. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. You That's the nicest toilet. thing you've ever said to me. You 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 butchered the word toilet, though. Can you try oh, turlet, turlet, toilet, toilet. So yeah. let me ask Ethan: yeah. What do you think Donald Trump's trauma was that he has to hold on to things? I think um, the the real problem was even his father, Fred, in Queens. It's well known that he was the it was people think that Donald Trump invented the gold toilet. It was actually Fred who (laughs) who started with the gold toilet thing. But they didn't make a gold toilet in a kid size. (laughs) The little Donald was on a giant gold toilet. So he that's that's a lot of his complexes about feeling small and feeling inadequate and being being overwhelmed by all the issues around toilet training. It all began there with Fred and his and the golden toilet. And it's like you've heard of James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> yeah. Fred and the Giant Gold Toilet. So. But why don't we hear anything about Donald's mother? Didn't he have a mother? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Who, d- who didn't protect him, I think. Or something, whatever right. it was. And a gold toilet, the, uh, assuming... You come from a family that worships gold, like the Trumps. What does defiling gold? What, what is this? What is the subconscious thinking that I'm going to have this toilet of gold that I will defile if I'm lucky every morning? You know, normally I would say, like the doctor always says, it's very individual. <laughs> but in this case, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> in this case it's because it wasn't it wasn't uh it, it's that sort of 18 to 24 karat gold that has more of a kind of tan like <laughs> taos and phoenix kind of color <laughs> yeah. palette to it so it, it really it doesn't really get defiled it's just it's all of a it's all of the same palette yeah i see are you optimistic? Do you, do you think when you see the the former president being arraigned now twice, does it give you hope 
for the future of this country? Doesn't. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's good that, that the process uh, survives, but it will not survive another presidency of his. And he has he has a shot at it. He does. Yeah. I, but I was actually encouraged by the statistic which I read in an I might have been in that boxes article, which said that only seven percent of polled Republicans took this this new indictment as a problem for their uh, confidence in this guy and their and their support of him. But I thought, well, that's enough. <laughs> no, 7% is enough in the world we're living in. If you can just peel off 7%, um, you know, those are the kind of margins that make the difference now. But, you know, it's a long, it's a long way off this, this election. Incredibly, we're still... We're still a year and a half But we're in a permanent state. Jesus. Is Kelly, General Kelly, who was his chief of staff uh, before Mark Meadows, scared shitless is what he said. He literally said Donald Trump is scared shitless. Is that General Kelly projecting his humanity onto an inanimate object? Yeah, I had the same question. Yeah. Yeah, I don't feel like he he sits still long enough and yeah. isn't chewing on something, like actually chewing on a, a snack long enough to actually be scared shitless. Like he's always, he seems to always be in motion and always be thumping his chest and riling up his troops and uh, he's going to battle until he you know, God willing, joins Berlusconi at the Bunga Bunga party. <laughs> Dr. Hershenfell, you thought the same thing, that he, he's not scared. Well, I, I think he's protected from being scared by his grandiosity and by uh, what Ethan has described, this constant in motion, making new plans more and more chest thumping. I, I'd personally be very happy if he were scared and his blood pressure went up and all that stuff. And there was an article in the Times this week about somebody who was at the trial and they were describing how they could tell how <clears throat> awful and frightened and scared he was. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know if I bought it. Yeah, I saw that too. I had the same question. I got scared. I, 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 I kind of empathized with a non-existent Donald Trump on Tuesday. I saw the motorcade, and I, I thought, well, this must be dawning on him the severity of this. But I, I, I don't think. I think he was in the car with his son Eric. Perhaps I think Eric was with him and they were just talking about the Yankees. It was just another day of theater. Yeah. And then straight from the indictment to some, you can imagine like the soundscape and the smellscape in that Cuban restaurant. Like you're just overwhelmed with the fans and their cameras and the food and the music. <laughs> and the <laughs> rabbis. <laughs> and the rabbis. There were, there were, Rabbis who who laid hands on him at wow. the pork at the pork restaurant at the Versailles, yeah. Jesus, oh, the well, Versailles—that's funny. Well, if it's what a Cuban mean? restaurant called the Versailles, who wow. knows what? They're a what, little confused. Yeah, the the Jews, the these Jews who, the Orthodox Jews who pray for Donald Trump, are they stupid? Or they're not stupid necessarily. Some of them are, but there we have some who are married into our family, um, and they are simply—they're not unintelligent, but they are actual cult members. Yeah, they have all of those features. They just—they can't actually apply any of their powers of reasoning uh, to this one situation. They're completely in it. So any any evidence? So it's just like there was that uh, there was that roundtable, that town hall of eleven people on PBS. Apparently, eleven Republicans, and none of them were moved at all by this by this news. 
of all these indictments. They all instantly, it just, the whole, anything that happens just fits right into their cultish worldview. And that's the, the role people. faith plays in how you perceive the real world, because it doesn't matter what the facts are. Right. You, can, you can't convince a believer that their God doesn't exist. Right. And so the religious leaders create the conditions for these people to believe that Donald Trump, in other words, if their rabbis said bad guy, then they would turn on Trump. Or they turn on the rabbi and get another rabbi. Rabbis. This is not led by the rabbis. This is a um, a movement within the group that, for whatever reason, they turned their trust to this maniac because they think that he will side with Israel no matter what. I guess, yeah. I think it's sad as the Israel for the, these people. It's Israel, it's taxes, and it's also just the kind of trolling. A lot of people. The, of the what is it? What is the number now? Forty million that are in his cult. Whatever it is, I think a lot of it is just the rage. It's bottled. It's rage that's packaged. It's gripes. It's um, feeling self righteous. All of that packaged in a very uh, simple way, and it's very appealing to those. Whatever that number is, thirty-five, forty million, and ruining. Parties and making sure that people like us get upset. They delight in our. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. going back to, to the Jews who support Trump here, here we are children of the enlightenment seeing Donald Trump as the blueprint for, if we're lucky, Chile under Pinochet. And if we're not lucky, Hitler. I mean, we we just see all we put all the patterns, piece everything together, and we we see who he is. How could rabbis who know European? How could they not recognize who Donald Trump is? Well, rabbis have some special mystical power, according to you. No, they're, but they the, people and. There's some stupid. There's some stupid ones. There's some stupid ones for sure. But there, there are some rabbis who would not even be able to recognize who Hitler was. We've had a good eighty years to read some books about that. But they still would say, like, there, there are people who would argue in an extremely twisted theological argument to say that he was just a an emissary of God punishing the reform movement by getting rid of these apostates. I've actually heard a um, a Satmer Hasid and they are the most stringent of anybody and this person said that even our ancestors in the 20s and 30s they were not pious enough and that's why that happened to them. And therefore, we have to be Meshuga pious. And. Um, right, so talk about fitting whatever evidence comes right. your way, your yeah. worldview. That's as, as extreme as it gets. Are there rabbi, I guess in Israel, there are men, men, not women, who are paid to just read the Torah all day? Is that correct? Yeah, that's 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 a long time tradition. Yes. Hi, I'm leaving. I'm going off to work. Did you pack? The dangerous me? thing is that those are the same guys who are paid to drive the buses <laughs> is it, while they're reading. While they're reading, they don't they don't look at the road. <laughs> you look. Yeah. Very dangerous. But that that's their job is to to just read all day. Study, yeah. Read one book all day, or no, 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 no. It's many books. Many, many, many books. books. And can you be a scholar if all you're doing is reading the Torah and the responsa and the Tal the Talmud? I mean, there 
you say many, many books, but we're basically talking about how many, four, five? No, but look, I think honestly, you, you can develop a lot of intellectual skills and, and reasoning and argument and um, ethics. What's that? It's scholarship. Yeah, scholarship, ethics, humanism. You can develop all sorts of things out of that. It just depends how you do it. I think you can, you can study all day and, and that can... But if you take I, a human being and for 60 years all this person has done is right. looked into the holy books, right. immune to all that's going on around him, it's almost as though it's a, a human being who's been frozen and then you thaw him out and welcome him to the real world. What is he going to know? Well, he's I've known people like this, as a matter of fact, and they're not frozen. They have frozen out the external world, which they don't think is all that important. In their minds, they're involved in what's really important. And reading the news and, you know, making money and all that stuff, that's just a distraction. But, but you're also you're also dis, dis, uh, discounting and ignoring a very important part of these people's lives, which is their family and their community. And it's food. And food. Well, yeah. I, I, yes. Food. Um, so so that's all going on. It's a way to live your life. Right. It's how to live our lives and what one book are we all i mean i my my nose is in the iphone too many hours a day and so. there is something rep repetitious about living in the real world that, absolutely that, that you you begin to see the same story over and over again and probably it's somewhere in the bible as well yeah you know, I was thought, thinking about this earlier today, and it just sprang to mind again. I think it was John Gilgood. I heard him say once that he had never read a newspaper. He really cut himself off because he thought, for whatever reason, he was so devoted to theater and being an artist and being a performer and Shakespeare and studying his roles. He just never, he made a decision. He just wouldn't ever read a paper. And he lived, I, I would assume, he lived a, a life of a lot of value. There are certain people who... Uh sort of good looking they waltz through life effortlessly and uh, they're almost like ghosts to me so what are you reading dr hershenfeld let me say one more thing about that about the newspapers <clears throat> sometime in the mid 60s i was applying for a job and i was sitting in a waiting room for a long time and there was a copy of the new york times and i read the first section from the beginning to the end. And Vietnam was talked about and whatever politics was talked about. And when I finished, I realized that this piece of newspaper was one year old. And I I never picked it up in all of the reading. Because it, it was all repetitious. Pl Pluska, what is it, Pluska Sean? How do you know so much? I just know that phrase. I know that phrase in every language. That's all I know. Last week you said something that would have taken me 10 years to come up with. Before D-Day, they had oh. A-Day and B-Day and C-Day. Right. B-Day, I kind of know what B-Day. Yeah. <laughs> that was the real shit show. <laughs> It was <laughs> the French insisted on B Day. <laughs> Can we at least fact, try to start with it? We say we're doing B Day before A Day. <laughs> anyway, that was uh, what are you reading, Doctor? <laughs> Doctor, every, everything is a, stir a circle. We come back to the golden toilet. The golden toilet. Yes. yes, which was what like my a parent... golden parachute. It's when you leave your job, they give you the golden toilet or the golden parachute. No, that was the what my parents. Whenever I misbehaved, they said, "Remember the golden toilet." 
do unto others as you'll be done unto you. What What do you? I don't know what I'm that reading means. the last white man. It's supposed to be a very um, popular book. It was originally in French, I think, and I, I'm only like a third of the way into it. But what happens is the sky wakes up one morning. Wait, spoiler alert or no? No, it's right in the first few pages. Okay. And and he, he looks at his hand and he's turning brown. Just a regular guy. And he's totally flummoxed. And so it seems to be an interesting book. I'll, you mean a regular white guy. A regular white guy. Regular white guy's turning brown. There, right. there was a book in the 60s called Watermelon Man. Same. And I think the comedian Godfrey Cambridge played, he was African-American, played a, a white guy who woke up one day and, and, and turned black. What are you reading, Ethan? I'm actually reading this novel called, it's, it's called Chilean Poet. Chilean Poet by a, a guy named Z Alejandro Zambra is his name. It's a very fun novel I happened to pick up in a bookstore. But I wanted to say a friend of mine who self-published a novel about 25 years ago was a, a similar theme to the thing you're reading, Doctor. Um, it was uh, he's my friend Kit Troyer, who has an amazing blog. He still writes great stuff. You can look him up, Kit Troyer. And his, uh, his novel was called, I think, 40 CCs. This is about a guy who discovers uh, it's something about also having a surprise racial makeup. That he, he discovers. So there was the fill the the stain, the human stain. Oh, yeah, the human stain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Fantastic. This I looked at the clock, I couldn't believe it. It was like we were just starting. What uh do we have to plug? Um uh tomorrow at nine AM I'm having my first uh please join me. I'm having my very first colonoscopy ever. Tomorrow Are you morning. really? At four at nine a.m. Yeah, I've. Um, Are you prepping as we speak? I'm, I'm in the prep day. I'm sitting on my golden toilet. Right Wait a second! Now. You were able to go thirty minutes with me while you were prepping. I tried to not mention this, but now it's it's as the, it's coming out right near the end. Comes out in the end. <laughs> Enjoy. Thank you. Um, Enjoy the twilight. I'm going to be live live streaming it. <laughs> um, I think you're live streaming some of it right now. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be streaming everywhere. and um, But you can also just uh, watch it later. <laughs> just remember, <laughs> the camera adds 10 pounds. Yes. yes. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you, Dr. Philip right. Hershenfeld. <laughs> this was great. Thank you, Ethan. I'll, I'll see you next week. Thank you. Next week. Goodbye. Next week. Thank you. God bless. God bless. God bless. God bless.